Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. The U.S. Postal Service is a 240-year-old institution. It delivers 140 billion pieces of mail annually, with the number of packages more than doubling over the past decade, and that number continues to rise. The 2020 election reminded us of its value and importance in the distribution and collection of voter ballots. With midterm elections approaching, three states have already passed laws to limit voting by mail. Historian and policy analyst Christopher W. Shaw offers a history of the Postal Service and a look at the consequences if current attacks are not blocked in a book called First Class, The U.S. Postal Service, Democracy, and the Corporate Threat. It's from City Lights. Christopher Shaw joins us now. Welcome. Hello. Good to be with you. In his foreword to your book, Ralph Nader writes that, quote, the preventable plight of our U.S. Postal Service is an important issue for all Americans. But but in light of the financial crisis it's facing, is that completely preventable? It's uh, largely preventable. If you look at the financial losses, maybe 90 percent of them are due to this uh, manufactured crisis based on pre-funding retirees' health care benefits uh, 75 years into the future, which is not anything that, uh, you know, it's not on the actuarial tables to do that, and it's nothing that any other government agency or private corporation attempts to do. So that's the largest part by far of the Postal Service's financial losses is the decision by Congress to have the Postal Service pre-fund its retiree health benefits um, in a very accelerated and aggressive manner. And its pension is overfunded by billions. It's required by law to make an annual payment of nearly $5.5 billion to prepay for health benefits for future uh, retirees. Uh, That's a, a mandate that no company or government agency has imposed. Just the post office? Just the Postal Service, they're the only ones uh, who are trying to, supposed to do this, required to do this. And so when they talk about the financial crisis, it's really, uh, it's a bookkeeping issue and it's all about a paper loss that shows up on the balance sheet. If you actually look at the revenue coming into the Postal Service, uh, the cash flow looks a lot better. Now, the Postal Service is an independent agency of the executive branch of the U.S. federal government that's responsible for providing postal service in the U.S., one of the few government agencies explicitly authorized by the U.S. Constitution? That's right. Yeah, right there in the Constitution, the Postal Clause. Um, So the post office has a long history in this country, and um, I, I, I personally hope that it has a good future ahead of it as well. And I think it's possible that that can be the case. It goes back to 1775 during the Second Continental Congress when Benjamin Franklin was appointed the first postmaster general. But then the, the, the department itself was created 1792 with the passage of the Postal Service Act and then elevated to a cabinet-level department in 1872 and then transformed by the Postal Reorganization Act of 1970 into the U.S. Postal Service as an independent agency. So it's been adjusted constantly. Was that because there were problems all along the way? Um, It has more to do with uh, an expanding vision for for the post office. So when it first got started during the Revolutionary War, it was largely about military um, operations, having communications between the Continental Congress and the Continental Army. I mean, that was the, the main priority. And then with the 1792 Act, uh, the Postal Service really takes on the role of being a communications network. 
So uh, George Washington, as president at, the, at that time, thought this was particularly important, was the idea to have an informed citizenry in this new experiment with Republican uh, government. He wanted people to know what was going on. And so at that point, then the post office really starts um, delivering newspapers and other sources of information at a very much reduced uh, postage rate. Um, and then when you come up to, to 1970, well, at that point, then that's uh, sort of a new vision for it. So the idea was that it, uh, the post office had always received or almost every year received uh, some subsidy of some amount from the federal government to fund its operations. Um, then in 1970, they decided they wanted to be self-supporting through posted sales with no more uh, appropriation from the U.S. Treasury. So uh, that was a, a real change in just the kind of organization of the of the postal system and, and the way that it operates. And that, that was the beginning of uh, some of the problems we're talking about now, I assume. That's right. Yeah. I mean, the it worked very well, this idea of having the Postal Service entirely funded through postage for a number of decades because the volume of mail kept going up and up and up. Uh, but starting, you know, with the Internet around the year 2000, um, some questions started to come into play. And then mail volume actually peaks in the year 2006. And that's the same year that they passed the law with the pre-funding uh, deal that we were just talking about for the retirees' health benefits. And then you have the uh, financial crisis in 2008. And any time that the economy suffers, then the revenues for the Postal Service suffer as well. And so... At that point, then we start to see these uh, financial problems um, emerge. Um, and because, again, the Postal Service is supposed to be entirely funded on postage, uh, it doesn't have as much uh, flexibility to, to address those um, issues um, and, as it would have in the past. And, and as well as the, uh, as the Internet, doesn't the Postal Service now have to compete against private package delivery services like United Parcel Service, FedEx, and Amazon? Yeah, well, I mean, the interesting thing about about this is that the Postal Service actually it only started delivering packages in uh, 1913, and the reason for that is because the uh, there were uh, basically a cartel of of private delivery uh, companies at the time there who um, price gouged consumers, provided really poor service, and so there was this grassroots push, um, especially amongst uh, farmers, uh, people in the Midwest, but really nationally. Uh, to get the post office to start delivering packages. And so that's how parcel post comes into play. Um, but then uh, we begin to see the emergence of, of UPS on a large scale in the 1950s, 1960s, 1970s. Federal Express comes along in the 1970s. And as uh, more and more packages are shipped, and part this has to do with the more recent development of the internet and online shopping, uh, we see uh, that the uh, UPS and, and FedEx are, are, are certainly uh, major uh, competitors here uh, for the Postal Service in terms of delivering packages. Um, so one thing about the Internet is that it has a certain amount of mail has been diverted to the Internet in terms of letters, uh, that kind of traditional correspondence. But at the same time, there's been an increase in the amount of packages that are being sent through the postal system. So the Internet kind of works in two different ways. In the 1950s, the post office sought to provide next-day delivery for all first-class mail in the United States. That was considered important at the time. Uh, but has that ever happened? I know, I know it doesn't happen right now. Well, on a local basis, you still could get a, a letter, even same-day delivery sometimes, into the, into the 1980s. Um, and really until um, uh, 2012, 2013, 
in kind of the, the local area, you could get next day first class delivery. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's been a closing of processing plants over the years. And so that has reduced the, the speed of delivery. And you're right. At this point, the standard even on a local basis would be uh, two days before a letter would get uh, get delivered. So uh, the mail was actually being delivered faster in uh, previous decades than it is uh, than it is today. Haven't some rural post offices also been closed down recently to save some money? That's a, a constant subject of uh, discussion. Every few years or so, there's a, a push to close uh, these these rural post offices. And there's a lot of resistance to that um, because of the fact that uh, it's very important as a community center in small towns, also as just a symbol of identity that these towns even exist, that they're, they're recognized as, as communities. They have their own um, zip codes. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I mean, the, the zip code is uh, it's a permanent marker um, there. And, and you, so you have the post office. And um, so there's always this push, although the, co- the cost savings are, are really very small for an operation the size of the, the Postal Service. Um, so there's, there's, there's sort of an ongoing um, you know, push to close them, and we do have them closed. But anytime that uh, Postmaster General or some other official comes up with an idea to close thousands of them and puts that out there, um, that never quite comes to fruition because Congress gets involved and uh, puts a stop to it. Since the early 1980s, haven't many direct tax subsidies to the U.S. Postal Service, with the exception of subsidies for costs associated with the disabled and overseas voters, been reduced or or eliminated? Yeah, the the Postal Service had an ability to get, uh, after the Reorganization Act was passed in 1970, until the early 1980s, they could still get uh, some of those subsidies. Um, But at this point, yeah, the only funding that the Postal Service gets uh, from the from the federal government, from the Treasury, is to uh, basically deliver mail for uh, people who are, are blind and also um, to get uh, ballots from overseas. And so this is uh, maybe tens of millions of dollars, um, which is a very, very small amount um, in terms of the Postal Service's overall. Otherwise, budget. it's expected so, to be self-sustaining. That's right. Yeah, it's supposed to be self-sustaining through postage, and um, that is that is what it, the way it, it operates these days. And that's why the cost of a first-class stamp has gone up a lot in just the last few years. It really has gone up a lot in just the last couple of, of years um, from where it, from where it traditionally has been. I mean, the cost of a first-class postage stamp kind of hovered around um, fifty cents if you adjust it for inflation over long, long time. And it's now creeping up and getting close to 60 cents. Uh, so uh, definitely the Postal Service is, is trying to get a little extra money out of that, that first class postage stamp. Why do you argue that the Postal Service is important to the greater good, to the democratic process and, and to our democracy in general? Well, it's a democratic public service. And it's a democratic public service that actually interacts with everyone in this country on a daily basis. And so that principle of the idea that everyone in the country, it doesn't matter where you live, if you live in a, one of those small towns with the little post office we were just talking about, or if you live in you know, New York City, um, if you are someone who's wealthy or you're someone who's living in poverty, um, none of these distinctions matter as far as the, the postal service is, is concerned. Um, you're all entitled to uh, equal level of service. And so I do think there's an affirmation of democratic principles um, in just the way that the 
post office delivers mail uh, six days a week. And I, I think that especially in a, in a country where we're not exactly overwhelmed by public services, um, by the government uh, providing services to people, that that makes the Postal Service particularly distinctive and also particularly important. Um, so that's why I do think that the, the Postal Service is really a kind of a representation of uh, the best aspirations of, of democracy in this country. Well, you mentioned earlier the special discounted postal rate for books. How is that a reflection of American democracy? Yeah, well, this ties in with this idea dating back to the 18th century of uh, the postal system um, helping people to be informed. And so with paperback it, books as well, right? Uh, paperback books in the late 19th century qualified a second class postage rate that had been reserved for newspapers and periodicals. Yeah, the uh, the post office and, and Congress sort of looked the other way at uh, publishers that would package paperback books as if they were and pretend that they were uh, magazines or periodicals, which were officially part of that second class postage category. And so they would look the other way as this uh, these paperback books uh, move through the mail in that way. And then uh, there's a push to get an actual official uh, rate postage rate classification for for books that happens and and uh, that comes into uh, uh, comes into being in the under the Franklin uh, Roosevelt administration in 1942. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. It was in under on a temporary basis for a, a couple of years, and then they got a permanent law during the Second World War. And so, as a result, it is uh, cheaper to send books. I mean, it's called media mail these days, but it's a very affordable way to to send books. And this ties in with the idea of people being able to be educated and informed and the Postal Service having a, a role to help with this. And then there's even a, another special category specifically for libraries that they, they can use that's uh, uh, more adapted to, to their needs. So definitely the use of books in the postal system is, I would say that, yeah, I mean, you pointed it out and I agree. That's another way in which uh, the Postal Service does, I think, uh, help uh, support and uphold the idea of informed citizenry and, and therefore democracy. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Uh, my guest is Christopher W. Shaw. His book, First Class, The U.S. Postal Service, Democracy and the Corporate Threat, is published by City Lights Books. There's a whole bunch of other things, laws that were passed uh, involving the uh, the Postal Service, transcontinental air mail service was begun between New York City and San Francisco in 1920. Uh, before then, I guess everything went by train. That's after the Pony Express was no longer doing delivering the mail. That's right. By that time, they, they'd taken the, the mail off of the, the post rider and the stagecoach and all that. Uh, and it was on and I was on trains. And actually, when they first started with uh, air mail, what they would do is it was so dangerous to fly at night that they would um, flight on airplanes during the day and then put it on trains uh, during the night. Um, but yeah, they could get the mail from uh, one coast to another uh, much faster. And it starts there from New York City to San Francisco is the first transcontinental uh, airmail service. The first airmail service uh, period was between New York City and, and Washington, D.C. And that gets up and running just a couple years earlier. Well, how much did that change things for Americans, uh, for business and for communication? Always having a postal system that was interested in uh, getting these uh, letters and, and newspapers 
um, faster um, has a big impact on, on American history. If you go back to really the sort of early to mid 19th century, there's something that the historians uh, call a communications revolution. And the uh, postal system was, was part of this. At that time, the post office begins to uh, reduce postage rates for mailing letters. And this makes it more accessible to the average uh, citizen. And so you begin to have a more of a national community in which people are in touch with each other, even though they're in far-flung places and a much more uh, regular basis. So that makes a big difference. And then if you look at commerce, just the fact that uh, business correspondence can move quickly and get from one place to another, that certainly did facilitate, um, you know, the, it helped in terms of the, the economy. And then um, in 1950, yeah. Congress created a special postal rate for nonprofits, and a nonprofit leader said, to a large extent, nonprofits depend upon the U.S. mail for their existence. That's right. Yeah, that's the argument for why these uh, nonprofit organizations said that we should get a special postage rate so that we have more money to spend on our actual missions and we'll spend less money on on postage. And um, it played a really important role in funding a lot of nonprofit organizations involved in uh, progressive politics and also conservative politics in the 60s and 70s and even up to today. And then all kinds of other charitable organizations, educational organizations, all of them have uh, used the nonprofit postage rate as a major element of their fundraising efforts over the decades. So do you see the, the current crisis or possible crisis as a result of all the things we've been discussing or the fact that our current postmaster general, the 75th, is, is Louis DeJoy, a Trump appointee who's been a major Republican Party donor and fundraiser, and the founder and CEO of a logistics and freight company called New Breed Logistics, the first postmaster in two decades without prior experience in the U.S. Postal Service. Lose the joy, I think, is certainly going to be part of any discussion that we that we have about this. But I, I do think that um, this uh, pre-funding issue we were talking about that kind of opens the door to a lot of the, the cutbacks and really creates a crisis because at that point you can, uh, someone can come in and say, look, the postal service, it's, it's, it's a disaster. Uh, it's failing. We need to take drastic remedial action uh, immediately. And so Louis DeJoy, he came in and he started doing things very fast and very aggressively. Uh, we saw it in um, summer 2020 with the removal of the uh, mail sorting machines, with uh, uprooting of collection boxes, with cutting of post office hours. And it's kind of continued um, from there, where he um, then decided to come up with a 10-year plan, which is going to um, perhaps close post offices, reduce post office hours, and then one thing we've seen of it already is uh, reducing the first class uh, delivery standards in terms of how fast the mail gets from one place to another in the country. As, so, a, as a result, it's been projected that almost four out of 10 pieces of first class mail will see slower delivery. That's right. Yeah. And especially if you are someone who lives in kind of the extremities of the country or anyone who lives west of the Mississippi River, um, you are particularly impacted by this. So it used to be that a first class letter, it would get from coast to coast in, in three days, anywhere in the in those, uh, you know, four contiguous states there, you get a first class letter in three days. Um, now to get a letter from New York City out to California is 
is five days. And that used to be how long it would take to get a letter from New York City out to Guam in the uh -huh. Pacific Ocean. So it's a major slowdown from uh, the traditional standard of service that uh, Americans had grown to expect. Paul Steidler, a senior fellow at the Lexington Institute and an expert on the Postal Service, says that DeJoy's plan will be, quote, disastrous. Mail delivery will be slower than in the 1970s. Uh, uh, and uh, yes, and the, and the three-day first-class mail delivery standard will drop to five days. So who will be hit hardest by this? Rural areas, the disabled, the elderly, businesses, who? Well, geographically, it's, it's people in um, areas like uh, the Rocky Mountains and the Pacific Coast, also parts of South Texas, uh, down in Florida. But then in terms of which groups are the most uh, dependent on the Postal Service to begin with, it's, um, it's older Americans, it's lower income Americans, it's rural Americans, it's uh, Americans with disabilities. These are all people who are much less likely to, for instance, um, be online or have access to, to home broadband internet. Uh, so they are the people who will be the most impacted um, by it. And also another group that's very concerned about it are small businesses. Uh, small businesses are often heavily dependent on the, on the postal system. And um, so they are, uh, this is a, certainly a matter of concern for them as well. Personally, there are certain things I get in the mail which I would consider junk mail, that I wish cost more to be mailed so that I would get less of it. But then, uh, as you point out, some pretty important stuff gets held up. Uh, in 2016, the U.S. Postal Service had its fifth straight annual operating loss to the amount of $5.6 billion, of which $5.8 billion was the accrual of unpaid mandatory retiree health benefits. Um, so it's to some degree, it's kind of stuck, isn't it? Well, it's going to be stuck with these losses as long as um, those, uh, you know, we keep having the, that mandate to pre-fund keeps accumulating and showing up on the balance sheet. Um, and so there is a lot of agreement amongst everyone who's looked at the issue that that needs to be addressed and, and removed. I mean, that is a real weight on the, on the Postal Service there. Um, so, you know, that's just going to keep Keep, keep there, and the Reading's just going to keep piling up as long as it has to uh, do this uh, funding of the retiree health benefits, which, again, I mean, all these other organizations, they operate on more of a, a pay-as-you-go um, manner here, whereas the Postal Service is actually supposed to um, be funding uh, retiree health benefits for people who aren't even working for the Postal Service yet, and in some cases who uh, probably are not even born yet. Um, so it is a very, it's a unique and particularly burdensome uh, requirement, as you point out. Wouldn't it be more sensible to repeal that law than to do some of the other things that Louis DeJoy is suggesting? It makes a lot of sense to, to repeal that law. And I, I believe DeJoy even is uh, supportive of, of repealing that, that law. Um, unfortunately, the way things are in Congress these days, not a lot of legislation gets moving. Mm -hmm. And the Postal Service has not got up to that sort of top uh, tier of, of priority in terms of uh, addressing the issue. But if you were to repeal that law, then all of these uh, sort of news reports we see about the postal financial problems would be very much um, addressed. And we could get a much better idea of, you know, exactly where the situation is, because that's just this very anomalous uh, burden that exists uh, doesn't really make sense in terms of what any actuarial person would, would want to do. 
if you want to get to why we have it in the first place, it's because the Postal Service had overpaid into its uh, its fund, and then the uh, uh, the, con- uh, the 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 federal government's uh, controller uh, was worried about well, if we return this money to the Postal Service, then it's going to impact the federal budget deficit. So they put an escrow account while they're figuring out what to do with it, and then okay, so to sort of cancel out that uh, potential transfer, we'll have the Postal Service massively pre-fund, uh, so basically put the money back in there again. Um, so that's the reason that that, that exists in the first place, um, but it really has not uh, been the best way to do things. And at the time it went through in 2006, the Postal Service was doing fairly well financially. Uh, but then with the financial crisis, that changed. Uh, so it's something that uh, needs to be re-examined and, and addressed. I wonder what Mansion and Cinema think about all of this. Uh, well, you, you know, I, I, uh, I don't know, but I, I do know that um, uh, West Virginia is a rural state and it's a low income state. So hmm. he may be um, open to some of these changes. Well, the response of, of corporate businesses to the postal service delays is to ask its cut their customers to shift to more online communication and, and paperless statements. Uh, so. Uh, and that's not going to change, is it? It seems to me that that's the wave of the future. Well, that's been, yeah, I mean, it's been the, the wave of the future for the f- over 15 years I've been looking at, at the subject. But at the same time, um, the future is not right now. And so there's still billions of pieces of mail that are going to be there for, for a while. Um, and also at this point, I think that uh, kind of the low-hanging fruit has been uh, – gotten in terms of getting consumers to shift to online. And there's a lot of consumers who they like to receive that uh, paper statement, uh, that paper bill in the mail. They like it because they find it easier to monitor. Um, and then like to mail because, in a check when uh, when they get a, a bill rather than, than do it online. There's a lot of people who like to do that too. Um, so it's a preference that millions of Americans have, and it's uh, going to be a reality for some time to come. Won't uh, ordinary citizens and small businesses be the, who are more reliant on single-piece mail uh, be affected uh, because uh, delays in access to delivery uh, will will affect their lives? Uh, and uh, some people have said this is an example of the divide between the haves and the have-nots. Well, I think that's right. And, and that's where uh, when the mail was slowed down on, on October 1st, uh, small businesses are, are worried about, um, you know, getting payments on time. You have cases. I'm sure there's going to be people who are they're going to go to mail their rent check and it, it won't be on time. They're going to have people who are impacted in terms of late payments and that will end up on their credit score. Um, so there are real world impacts to uh, this, these decisions to to slow down the mail in the way that has occurred. What's the rationale behind uh, getting rid of some of the blue mailboxes? And um, I, I can understand uh, that why they would want to uh, eliminate Saturday delivery, although I think that would be a bad idea. The blue mailboxes, there's a cost associated with going to collect the mail from them. And so, you know, again, you're trying to, I mean, when the joy came in, uh, he said, that he wanted to drive out costs. So that's a way to drive out cost. And really you have a situation where over the last 50 years, the number of blue mailboxes has, has halved um, at the same time that the American population has gone up by, I believe over hundred million people. So there's less of them around. Um, and the idea is it's just another, yet another marginal way to, to cut the costs. Uh, in terms of Saturday delivery, 
Um, that at this point is uh, the push for that, which was a long one that went on for many years. Um, we aren't hearing about that as much these days. And that's because at this point now, the, the private uh, delivery companies like uh, UPS, they're starting to uh, be interested in delivering on the weekends because you have uh, Amazon and others want uh, packages delivered on those days. So uh, Saturday delivery is uh, not as much interest in cutting that, although, you know, who knows uh, what will happen. But uh, certainly that was a long time push and it ended up actually being a mistake if that would have happened, uh, because that's now an actual advantage that the postal service has that a lot of big customers are, are very interested in. You're listening to Leonard Lopez at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. We're back with Christopher W. Shaw, whose book, First Class, The U.S. Postal Service, Democracy, and the Corporate Threat, is published by City Lights. After DeJoy uh, started uh, his program to drive costs out, there were rallies to save the post office, and he was called before Congress to address a situation that looked like an attempt to dismantle the agency. Has anything changed as a result? Well, I think there was a big response um, to those uh, rallies and, and protests that occurred back in August uh, 2020. And I, that was, uh, I think, a hopeful sign of citizen action where when people speak up, you do get results. Uh, yeah, but you say happened, as of October 1st, some of the changes have already begun to go into effect, the, the changes that he's proposed. Well, I'm not claiming that they were able to completely um, alter uh, the management philosophy of, of Postmaster General DeJoy. But they were able to get a stop to uh, the removal of the, the mail, processing mail processing equipment. And they were also able um, to get the, a reversal on the, any type of changes in operations that had been made up to that point. They were all reversed, at least through the election. So um, there was a real impact there. And I do think that there has been a little more of a perhaps circumspect uh, approach here. Um, that although he is still moving fast and trying to do big things, I think he has been a little more careful in terms of what he does than was the case when he first came in and was really like a, a bull in a china shop, um, just doing one thing after another uh, without too much regard to uh, what others might have to say about it or uh, the kinds of impacts it, it might have. So I do think there there was an impact, um, definitely. On the other hand, you write that this is one part of a broader goal to eliminate and privatize government services generally. Yeah, well, this is uh, a long-running campaign here, really since at least the 1970s, where you have uh, people who are of a libertarian mindset, who don't like the idea of government services, who don't want the government to have a presence in people's lives. Even though and it goes we, back to the, the, the earliest days, in fact, pre-revolutionary days? Yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, uh, if you're a conservative, you should see that there's that postal clause in the Constitution, one would think, and say, okay, well, I guess that this is something that is supposed to be a government agency. But for a lot of um, libertarians with, with funding who give it to think tanks and, and, and other places like that. Um, there has been this real push uh, 
to deregulate the postal market and to uh, privatize the postal service. So that is a, a long range goal of uh, some influential people um, in Washington, D.C. and those who fund them. Including some corporate interests, I would assume, who uh, would like to transform the postal service from a government service uh, that exists to to benefit the public into a business that operates to meet financial objectives. That's right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they they wanted to have just the same approach as a for-profit corporation, whereas the the postal service is uh, really a very unusual operation in this country because. While it does try to do things efficiently and fund itself, it does also have this larger public service uh, mission that it uh, fulfills. And they would like it to just look like every other, every other business. And then there would be opportunities there for even more uh, contracting out to uh, for-profit corporations or perhaps the Postal Service exiting certain um, services that it does and leaving those to uh, corporations to do. Um, so there are definitely self-interested uh, parties at, at work here um, that are trying to influence the future shape of the United States Postal Service. Well, President Biden has uh, has gotten rid of any number of Trump appointees, replaced them with people who are more in keeping with his ideas. Why can't he f- just fire Louis DeJoy? Uh, fire Louis DeJoy. This is what a lot of people are, are asking, and um, it has to do with the, the Postal Reorganization Act of 1970 that we mentioned before, and that really changed the relationship um, uh, politically um, between how the, the post office operates before and how it operates now. So it used to be that the Postmaster General was a presidential appointee and the Post Office Department was a cabinet-level department. After reorganization, it is now independent and it's more insulated uh, from politics. So you have a board of governors and the members of the board of governors are appointed by the president and then they go through a Senate confirmation process. Uh, But those are the individuals who pick uh, the postmaster general. They select the postmaster general. And um, what you have is uh, six uh, Trump appointees and then Biden made three appointees of his own. Um, So Thus far, uh, the Trump appointees who selected to join the first place and have supported his uh, changes that he'd wants, they've had the majority. Um, so that's why up to this point, um, you know, that's why President Biden cannot just fire him and also why up to this point, uh, DeJoy uh, continues to serve as Postmaster General. Well, this past Friday, President Biden announced his nominees to replace two members of the U.S. Postal Service Board of Governors, Daniel Tang- Tangerlini and Derek Kahn, who would replace Ron Bloom and John Borger. Um, if they were confirmed by the Senate, would that provide enough votes to remove DeJoy? It might. Um, so the situation, if, if they get in there, is, is that they are confirmed, which um, they are not particularly controversial nominees, so there's no reason to think that they won't be. But um, there will be four Democrats on the board, four Republicans on the board, and one independent on the board. And then at that point, perhaps we will get a, uh, a decide to go another way, another direction in terms of uh, leadership. So it's, it's not guaranteed, but I think that it's uh, certainly uh, much more potential for that to happen. Um, and it also for uh, the Board of Governors to um, send the message to DeJoy in their oversight capacity that, um, you know, the kinds of changes that he's been uh, proposing and enacting are, are maybe not ones that they approve. So 
there is a, certainly a potential here for uh, things to look a little different than they have been looking for the past year and a half or so. During the 2020 election, DeJoy claimed that he couldn't meet statutory deadlines for ballot delivery, and federal courts had to intervene to make sure the ballots were delivered in time to be counted. So he somehow found a way to have them delivered, even though he said he couldn't? <laughs> um, you know, the, the Postal Service actually did a very good job in terms of uh, ballot delivery. Um, the average time it took from when a uh, voter uh, put a ballot in the mail to when it was then delivered to a county board of elections was 1.6 days. And almost 100% of all the ballots that were cast were delivered within a week. Um, so once those operational changes had been reversed and you had these federal judges doing this oversight, uh, the Postal Service uh, was able to, to handle these ballots, which honestly shouldn't come as a surprise. It's designed to do that. Um, the ballots is really a drop in the bucket in terms of how many uh, items of mail the Postal Service delivers on a regular basis. So the Postal Service performed uh, very well in the 2020 election, and I think we can all be very grateful uh, for that, for the sake of our democracy. But this has become a major issue since. According to the nonpartisan Brennan Center for Justice, 253 bills in 43 states uh, proposed voter restrictions uh, were introduced by mid-February, and that number rose to at least 389 bills in 48 states by mid-May. I don't know whether, uh, well, 48 states, that's almost all of them. Uh, so there, this is a big, a big issue, isn't it? According to the Washington Post, at least 17 states have enacted laws this year that would tighten the rules about casting ballots and running elections. It is a big issue, and it's, it's a big um, Most of them change. targeting mail voting. Right. Yeah. I mean, uh, uh, President Trump said that uh, there were all kinds of problems with mail voting. Um, there is really no track record uh, demonstrating that there's been any increase in, in voting fraud when you have people doing uh, vote by mail. And, um, you know, in the past, it was uh, Republicans. Uh, so Oregon, for instance, uh, moved to an all vote by mail system uh, 20 years ago. And that was really Republicans who, le who led the push on that. And, and Democrats were uh, more resistant uh, to it. And then in the 2020 election, uh, Democratic voters were much more likely to vote by mail than Republican ones. So um, that's a change that is uh, underway where it's becoming a, a partisan issue and where you actually have a, a movement towards vote by mail by Democrats and, and away from it by, by Republicans. Um, one thing I do think is that the, uh, the idea that uh, turnout always helps Democrats and, and hurts uh, Republicans um, that may be changing. Uh, the 2020 Virginia uh, governor gubernatorial election, uh, very high turnout and, and a Republican one. So uh, these uh, Republican operatives who are leading this charge against trying to expand voting access uh, may be making an electoral miscalculation. But in any event, um, certainly vote by mail has become a, uh, a controversial issue in a way it never was before. Well, what are they claiming? That if you vote by mail, you're more likely to be doing something illegally? They claim that it opens up all kinds of uh, potential avenues to to voter fraud um, that uh, aren't there if you cast your ballot in person. But again, the the evidence just isn't there. I mean, you know, we, we all saw this uh, charade that uh, unfolded after the 2020 election with, um, you know, claims of, of uh, you know, the election being stolen. And uh, there really was no evidence that was able to be uh, provided. 
And in terms of vote by mail, it's a similar situation where if there's evidence out there of major vote fraud due to uh, vote by mail, then that evidence has not actually been uh, presented. And we have uh, situations in Arizona, Florida, Georgia, and Arizona. The Republican Governor Doug Ducey signed into law a change to the state's permanent early voting list, which is used to determine who receives mail ballots. And the new Rules state that if the voter does not cast a ballot at least once every two years, that they'll have to respond to a government notice to avoid being removed from the list. Uh, what's the likely impact of that sort of legislation? Well, all of these um, various new rules that are going into place are uh, designed to make it more difficult for for people to to vote. And um, it's just, you know the people who examine this issue point out that those who uh, tend to then it becomes even harder for them to vote are, are people who uh, are younger, who move more often, um, who are lower income, um, who are uh, members of uh, minority groups. I mean, these are, are the groups that are even more likely to be uh, disenfranchised by these these kinds of uh, changes and, and that are being enacted in, in, uh, in these states. In Florida, under Governor Ron DeSantis, several new voting restrictions have passed, including voters being required to renew their mail voting application every two years and to submit a form of identification. And with some exceptions, voters' access to drop boxes will be limited to early voting hours, a maximum of 12 hours a day. If a drop box is accessible outside of those hours, the the supervisor of elections could be fined a civil penalty of $25,000. And then also, voters are only permitted to drop off two ballots for non-family members. Uh, All of this, again, to uh, aimed at the people you just mentioned, younger people, people uh, of color and and such, poor people, people who move around? Those are the people who are most impacted by it, Um, but it's all designed to sort of reduce uh, the ability of of people to vote. Um, And it really is based on... um, not it's not based on evidence. There just is not evidence that uh, American elections have been marred by massive voter fraud. Um, so this it's kind of a, a, a solution for a non-problem, but it has this partisan implication, which seems to be what's driving it. And so the new uh, and the new yeah, voting law signed by Georgia's Governor Brian Kemp has been compared to Jim Crow laws. People are going back and, and talking about the kinds of uh, disenfranchisement, I mean, very explicit disenfranchisement that existed before the Voting Rights Act of uh, uh, 1965 and how they're, you know, that was designed to prevent people from voting. And uh, unfortunately, it seems like these laws are designed to do the same thing. So there are parallels there. This is Leonard Lopez at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. My guest is Christopher W. Shaw whose book that we're discussing is First Class, The U.S. Postal Service, Democracy, and the Corporate Threat, published by City Lights. Um, There's a proposal for a a Postal Service Reform Act of 2021. What are its aims? The main aim behind that is to get rid of that pre-funding requirement. Again, that would be the the main thing that it would do, um, because that's the one thing where really everybody who's involved in this question can agree. Um, So that's really kind of the agenda item number one for uh, people who are involved in these uh, postal policy discussions at at the moment. So is that it? Do you think that the the, uh, proposed law will do enough? 
I think it would go a long way, but that doesn't mean that there aren't other changes that should uh, take place and that would be helpful for the, the Postal Service to, to have. Um, I mean, I think that uh, a change in the direction of, of the leadership um, that could potentially happen with these new governors um, that would reaffirm the Postal Service's uh, mission as a, as a public service agency and um, the idea that, no, in fact, it's not a business. It is a, it is a public service. I, I think that would be that would be good. And then, I, uh, you know, there's other uh, potential things for the Postal Service to do in the future that I think it should have uh, more freedom to look into and to explore much in the same way that it was an expansive and creative and innovative institution throughout the uh, 19th and uh, 20th centuries. I don't see why it shouldn't be able to do that in the 21st century. And um, so I think that's another um, thing that would help. In his forward to your book, Ralph Nader argues that, quote, instead of dismantling the Postal Service, this is a moment to expand postal services. What's he calling for? Well, he's talking about some really basic things like the fact that the Postal Service cannot uh, deliver beer or wine, whereas, uh, you know, the private uh, shipping companies like like UPS and FedEx, they can deliver beer and wine. Or so that groceries. would be a very simple thing, uh, change to, to make. Um, but there's other um, ideas as well. Um, so post offices, there's uh, over 31,000 post offices in this country, and they're in city neighborhoods, they're in, they're in small towns, they're, they're in all of, uh, the communities, and that that should be a real, um, a real source of opportunity and a way for American citizens to connect uh, with uh, their government. Um, so things like being able to go and get a fishing license at the post office or uh, a hunting license at the post office, uh, ideas such as turning them into places that would actually be a place you could go to perhaps register to vote, um, having the post offices as a kind of a portal where you could get information about government services. Um, so they're, they're closing social security offices, but some of that information uh, that you can access uh, at those, and that's getting harder to access because of those closures that could be made available at, uh, at the post office. So, and things could be notary. They could keep a notary service, for example. I, yeah. I mean, I mean right now we, you go, you go to the post sites. office to get to, uh, to get a passport, so why not some of these other things? Yeah, why not? Indeed, yeah. I mean, I know uh, Nader certainly. Yeah, he wants a. He thinks the notary service would be helpful. I mean, there's just a lot of potential there uh, that is being unused and, and underutilized, uh, and that should be explored. And um, you know, ask people what kinds of things they want, and then look about into how it could be made possible to offer that at the post office. Well, in other countries, there's postal banking, and we had that until 1966. Why was it eliminated? Well, that's a subject of another book I wrote called uh, Money, Power, and the People, the American Struggle to Make Banking Democratic. Um, but the long and short of it is that the banking lobby never liked the idea of having a savings bank at the, at the post office. And the only reason that it went into operation to begin with in 1911 was a big grassroots movement of workers and farmers, really, that said, we're not being served by banks and the post office can come in and um, step in and provide this uh, service and meet this unmet need. And then uh, throughout the decades after that, um, there was uh, proposals to expand it beyond just being a, a simple savings bank to maybe having a checking account privileges, for instance, 
And uh, so there was a constant fight over over this issue with the banking lobby always pushing back against any kind of uh, postal banking. And then by the time you get to the 1960s, at that point, that sort of grassroots enthusiasm, that activism that had led to the creation of the uh, postal saving system in the first place, it had dissipated at that point. There just wasn't the same level of uh, civic engagement with the issue anymore. And so that really shifted the political calculus to where the banking lobby had the upper hand and they were able to uh, lobby through Congress a bill that uh, terminated the postal savings system. And so that was the, the end of that. And it was stopped accepting deposits in 1966 and shut down on a permanent basis in 1967. So uh, no more uh, banking at the post office anymore. Ralph Nader discusses the proposal for an independent nonprofit post office consumer action group, POCAG. How would that organization work? And we have about two minutes or so left. Yeah, POCAG, it would basically be a way that the Postal Service could deliver uh, a notice to every address in America, to every uh, residence, and then uh, the people living there could decide that they want to join a consumer action group that would lobby on their behalf uh, for the Postal Service. So the corporations have their lobbyists. This would be an idea for the American people to have their own organization to represent them when postal policy issues are being uh, debated. So you could pay a small amount of membership dues, and that would help to fund the organization. It would hire a staff, and then you would have your own citizen advocate um, to promote the interest of the average uh, postal patron, um, because at this point right now, again, the corporate lobbyists, they are on top of this. They have their people working for them, but there's nobody out there to really just represent the public. So that's the idea behind the post office consumer action group. Uh, but is that likely, especially under the current political environment? I think there's more interest in this uh, postal subject than there has been in a very long time. And so there's that potential to get uh, the POCAG in place just in the same way that grassroots pressure got a postal bank in place against great odds. Um, so if there is enough citizen demand, I think it is uh, possible to happen. I actually think the prospects for something like this look better than they have looked um, in decades because Ralph Nader first proposed the idea back in the 1970s. Um, but I'm not going to say it would be an easy thing to do. It would definitely take uh, a lot of demand from the public to, to make it happen. Do the uh, employees of the Postal Service, uh, there's almost uh, 500,000 uh, in 2020 and 148,000 non-career employees. Do they have much of an impact? They have a say, and they're definitely involved in these issues. And they have, um, comparatively speaking, come down on the on the side of, uh, trying to maintain this as a as a public service, um, but they are up also up against um, a lot of people on the other side who have a lot of uh, lobbying power as well. I've been speaking with Christopher W. Shaw, whose book First Class: The U.S. Postal Service, Democracy, and the Corporate Threat is published by City Lights Publishers. He is a historian and policy analyst, and the focus of his work has been on the postal system and the history of banking and social movements. And it has been my great pleasure to have him on our show today. Thank you so much. It has been my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. And that brings us to the end of our show. Special thanks to segment producer Kate Guan Allison for preparing today's interview. If you'd like to hear more 
You can access our over 500 past shows at WBAI.org. We're also on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else that podcasts are available. And there are links to all of our shows at LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. If you'd like to write to me, my email address is LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to take just a minute to ask you to support the station. We're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by going online right now to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950. That's 212-209-2950 to keep this show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. Like most public radio stations across the country, WBAI has been seriously challenged by this pandemic because a lot of our longtime supporters have had to suspend their support, which is why we're asking anyone who is able in this time of crisis to step up and make a contribution of any amount to help keep community radio and London located large on the air and coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. WBAI is supported 100% by listener donations. We don't take money from any other places, and that allows us to uh, be a lot freer. Uh, we don't have, we, nobody can influence what we do, but on the other hand, it also leaves us vulnerable in times of crisis like this. So um, if, uh, if you can, give us that call, 212-209-2950 right now or go online to give to WBAI.org. And becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy, is a particularly great way to support BAI without having to shell out a lot of money at one time, just $10, $15, $20 a month, whatever you're comfortable with. You can become a BAI buddy or make a contribution of any amount by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950. And a great thanks to everyone who's already supporting the station in the name of Leonard Lopate at large at whatever level you're doing it. And I hope you can join us again tomorrow when Julie Luongo and Dr. Joseph Trunzo will discuss their book, Long Haul COVID, A Survival's Guide, Transform Your Pain and Find Your Way Forward. We'll see you then.